Well, good afternoon. Thanks for staying. I'm glad I have someone to preach to this afternoon. As uh, we now gather to worship our God together, take uh, your Trinity hymn books, the Trinity turning to 269, Glorious Things to Thee Are Spoken, 269. Let's stand together as we sing.
Father, we do thank you for the solid joys and the lasting pleasure and treasure that you bring uh, to our hearts through the Lord Jesus Christ. We do thank you that it is uh, a hope that we have not just in this life, but also in that which is to come. And we pray that as we uh, do rejoice in hope of the glory of God, that you will feed us uh, with the manna that you have uh, given to uh, your church, preserved in your word. And we thank you uh, for that word. Pray that as we uh, read it and as we uh, hear it expounded, that you would uh, forgive our sins and grant us repentance, that we might walk in the way of truth where we are found wanting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where we will see a man exploring the not-so-solid joys and not-so-lasting pleasures of life. Solomon's uh, theme here in this uh, book, really, is he, he gives us his conclusion at the beginning of the first chapter that everything is vanity, and so there's no need to uh, discuss that. But he, he comes to, in these chapters in between, to show us his journey and how he came to that conclusion, perhaps. And also, one of his uh, stated uh, purposes is to find out what we should be doing. What is, <laughs> what is life, what is worth doing uh, in this life? So... Very uh, interesting. It's interesting that he starts out in this chapter, chapter 2, he said in his heart, Come now, I will prove you with myrrh. So I'm beginning to think that the Jews had this uh, kind of a national tendency of being very open, wearing their hearts on their sleeves. I always... uh, marveled at, at Jesus, how you knew uh, what he was thinking and, and what was in his heart. I'm not that way. I'm an Englishman by nature, and they have that tendency to be very closed. And so I, I very much admire that, and it's good to think about this as you're reading these uh, thoughts of Solomon. And as you look at men of wealth, We can never make this experiment that Solomon made. We don't have enough money. But as you look at men with money and see them living the good life, remember what Solomon says here, what was going on in his heart. You might have seen him at the party having a good time, but what was in his heart? He he comes to, there are many turnabouts in this chapter, um, by the way. Uh, You can be looking out for them in verse 12. Up to 12, he experiences some things. He has a turnabout there. And then in verse 17, there will be another turnabout. And then verse 20, he'll turn to something else. And um, you don't see that when you watch people's lives. You don't know what's going uh, through their mind and how maybe they hate life, even though um, they don't appear they're enjoying mirth. So... Interesting that we sung that song about Zion. There's 
four mentions of Jerusalem in these first two chapters. That kind of strikes me. Um, in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, I, Koheleth, was son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. What is so important about that? Well, he comes to chapter 2, verse 7. He says, talks about all the things that he was uh, accumulating. And at the end of that verse, he says, Above all who were before me in Jerusalem. And then again in verse 9, I was great and increased more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Why, <laughs> Why does he make that statement? He was only, what, the third king of Israel. But I think what he's in his mind he might be doing, I don't this is just this is just Cliff, so red flags. Go back you go back to Joshua's where we first see uh, Jerusalem mentioned. And so maybe he's talking about all the kings who were ever in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was quite fought contested over even during the days of Saul and during the days of David, even. We read about David taking the, the city must have been taking it uh, back, maybe. I don't know. But Jerusalem, uh, Zion, is uh, very much at the forefront of Solomon's mind, and we need to remember that he was great. There was nobody else could make this experiment, as I have said, and so we should listen very carefully to him. He's learned lessons that we can save ourselves a lot of trouble if we'll take uh, his word for it. So while I've been rambling here, my phone shut off. Anyway, 12, 17, and 20. Watch for the turnabouts. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with gladness so that you shall see good things. Behold, it too was vanity. Remember, vanity is a vapor, a mist, a mere breath. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of gladness, what does it do? I explored with my heart, again the heart, how to stimulate my body with wine, while my heart was guiding me wisely, and how to seize simple-minded folly, until I could see where is this good for the sons of men in what they do under heaven a few days of their lives. And there's what I was talking about, his stated purpose is to see what is good to do. Verse 4, I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself, are you noticing the frequent myself? Gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Just a side note, I believe that if you don't have slaves, you're really not all that rich. Verse 8, Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. 
There's an interesting verse that's often uh, hard to interpret, perhaps, versus if you're reading the King James, you're seeing uh, musical instruments. So how those two uh, translations come about, I couldn't hope to tell you, but uh, most of the, the newer ones go with the concubine. So it's the pleasures of drink, the pleasures of uh, flesh, and the pleasures of uh, owning uh, trees and vineyards and pools and singers. Uh, more than heart could imagine or wish. Verse 9, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Did I skip eight? No, thank you. Sorry. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because of all of my labor. And this was my reward for my labor. So enjoying it is the reward. Verse 11, Thus I turned to all my works which my hands had done and the labor which I had labored to do, And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no advantage under the sun. So, first turnabout, so I turned to see wisdom, madness, and simple-minded folly, more along the lines of intellectual pursuit, perhaps. What will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that there is an advantage in wisdom over simple-minded folly. I prefer just folly. As light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head. What does that mean? But the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that the fate of one becomes the fate of all, of all of them. Then I said in my heart, as is the fate of the fool, so will be my fate also. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said in my heart, this too is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise man along with the fool forever, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man dies with the fool. Turn about number 2, 17. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is vanity and striving after wind. Reut ruach is how it's uh, said in Hebrew, the striving. That's my butchered version of striving after the wind. I'm thinking about uh, taking that on as uh, the the new phrase for an exclamation (laughs) when somebody asks you how things are going. Uh, it's the striving after wind is what I'm doing. And uh, But notice, even in this, a turnabout, uh, earlier he said he found joy in his work. But now listen to him. The guy's on a, on a roller coaster. He's taking me on his roller coaster. <laughs> First I'm saying, okay, here's what i got to do. i got to enjoy my work. And then all of a sudden he hates it. So uh, hang on, though. <laughs> and who knows? Thus I hated, uh, somebody help me, where am I? Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. Hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a man of simple-minded folly. Yet he will have power over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored and for which I have acted wisely under the sun. This too was vanity. Final turnabout, verse 20. Therefore, I turned my heart to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his portion to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in the striving of his heart with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his endeavor is painful and vexing. Even at night his heart does not lie down. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. In itself it is. 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment outside of him? Here's another one of those hard to interpret verses apparently if you have the King James. It says, who can eat and drink more than I? Speaking of how, and I think that fits the context uh, better. Uh, he's talking about how much more he can do uh, than those who came before him. 26, for to a man who is good before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and gladness, while to the sinner he has given the endeavor of gathering, collecting, so that he may give to one who is good before God. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Now if you'll take your hymns of grace, the hymns of grace, we will sing 354, 354, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. The church has one leader, and that's Jesus Christ. 354 in the hymns of grace. Grave, let's stand together as we sing.
think I've told you in the past of being in college and taking the course History of Civ, and Dr. Pinozian would teach that class. It was in a big lecture hall. I was probably in there with two or three hundred other students as he lectured on the History of Civ, and he, he began every class pretty much the same way. I mean, he was a tall man, and uh, he had a bit of an accent, and the first thing he would always say is this, students, take out a half a sheet of paper. And that was because he was going to give us a quiz, a quiz of what we were have what we were have supposed to have read before coming to the class. But everywhere, Dr. Pinozian went home to be with the Lord, I think this past year. He taught for several years, but it was always take out a half a sheet of paper. We knew that was coming. And, and sometimes in the midst of this study, I want to say to you, take out a half a sheet of paper to see if we are gleaming what the Word of God has to say to us with regard to the topic that we're considering together in these afternoon services. That would be the first question. What is the topic that we're considering together on these Sunday afternoons? And hopefully you would all write down church officers. And as we have begun considering together the area of church officers, the next question would be, how many church officers or offices does the Bible say the church should have? And you would write down, I pray, two. I oh, see some of you even gave me that. I was just saying peace or two. I think it was two. <laughs> there are two, elders and deacons. Those are the two offices that are given to us in the Word of God for His church. And then my next question would be, what office are we considering now? And your answer would be the elders, the office of elder. And then I would ask, what is the function of an elder in a church? And this answer would have three parts. He is like a father to a family. He is like a shepherd to a flock, and he is like a ruler to his kingdom. The Word of God makes that clear that the office of an elder, if within the church, is to function as a father to a family, as a shepherd to a flock, and as a ruler to the kingdom. And then I might ask a question like this, what is the normal framework for the administration of the task of an overseer? And, th and that would be answered this way. The normal framework for the administration of the task of overseeing or oversight is that of a plurality and a parity of scripturally qualified overseers functioning with genuine ecclesiastical parity and realistic but harmonious functional diversity. In other words, the church in the norm would have a plurality of elders, more than one elder that is overseeing the flock. So what does that make us? A bit abnormal right now because we only have one elder. But the normal 
framework is that of a plurality of elders and a parity. They are equal with regard to the authority in the church. There are not various tiers of elders. There, I, I told you last week, I filled out an application and it wanted to know if I was the lead pastor, the senior pastor, the youth pastor, the administrative pastor, the music pastor, which one was I? To which I checked them all. No, I didn't. I, I think I checked. I don't know where I checked. I don't remember now. All right. But, but the Bible knows nothing of these characteristics. They only know of elders. And every elder must meet the same qualification if he's going to serve in the church as an elder. So now we come and we're going to take up the topic of the qualification of any man who serves in the eldership of the church. So take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you're wondering, I do not plan to cover all the qualifications this afternoon. Alright, so I just want to put you on ease. I'm not going to cover them all. We'll see how far we get. But 1 Timothy chapter 3. And of course you go to Titus 1 as well. And here we read verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceful, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here we have the qualification of any man who would serve in the office of an elder or overseer here in the church. And what you note right away as you look at this passage is that these requirements are non-negotiable. The requirements are non-negotiable this is an uncompromising standard that must be maintained. Here in 1 Timothy 3, we read these words. An elder must be. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. It is... An article of necessity. It's the same participle of necessity that Christ used 
in Luke chapter 24 and verse 26, when he's on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to these men, and he asks them this question. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary? Did, did Christ have to suffer? And your answer would be yes. He had to go to the cross. Without the shedding of his blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. It was non-negotiable. You can't compromise that. He must suffer. Well, one man has said that it is not only good that the elder possesses these gifts and graces or simply desires that he possess them, but it but is essential, a non-negotiable requirement for the office bearer. And for us as a church to admit anyone to this office but does not meet the biblical requirements at every point is to express anarchy to the head of the church. It is like, it is like the, the military officer who gives you instructions that you must carry out and you decide, well, I like most of them, but there's a couple there I don't agree with, so sure, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do. That's to express anarchy and rebellion over the one who is your authority. Christ is our authority. Christ is the head of the church. And it is Christ who has set down these requirements. And any man who serves in the office must meet them at every point. And may God keep us from ever expressing rebellion to what God has directed us to do. To appoint elders who are not qualified is to forfeit all grounds of expecting God's blessing upon this assembly. How do we ask God to bless? How do we ask God to meet with us if we engage in active rebellion, even for the sake of, well, we need a plurality. And so may God help us to recognize, I, I, I trust that you will take these things, many of you have heard them before, there's nothing new here, but I, I, I pray that you'll take them, pray over them, and ask God to raise up or bring in such men for the good of this assembly in days to come. But it is something that must be in the life of any man who serves as an overseer. So now, what are the specific requirements? Well, there you see. An overseer then must be, some of your translations, blameless or above reproach. The term that 
Timothy uses here means no ground to apprehend or to lay hold of. It's the idea of, of a criminal who has done wrong and you're laying hold of him and you're charging him with wrongdoing. Titus uses a bit of a different terminology here. The word he uses means no ground to call to account. There's no reason to indict him. All right. He may be accused of something, but it doesn't hold water. He may be accused of wrongdoing, but at the end of the day, no charges can be leveled. No reason to indict him. Whatever accusations may come his way, that they do not stick. He has sought to live a godly life above reproach. And it's interesting, not only in the church, but also outside the church. As we were reading there, verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And, and I believe what Timothy's giving us here is, is a canopy over which all the other requirements fall underneath. He's to be blameless. He's to be above reproach. How? In what area? His relationship to his wife, his relationship to his home, his relationship to money, his relationship to strong drink. In all these areas, this man should be above reproach. Now let me say this. It does not say he's to be a sinless man. Or he's to be a perfect man. Any man you appoint to be a pastor or an elder in this place will not be a perfect individual. He will not be without struggles. He will not be without temptations. He will not be a man who battles with certain ongoing sins just like each one of you battles with ongoing sin. But it's how he deals with them. It is how he responds to them. Is he quick to seek forgiveness when wrong is done? Does he recognize his vulnerability to various temptations? And, and, and there's something, I, bit, I believe, a bit unique in which he goes after pastors because if he can cause them to fall, it even has a greater ripple effect than perhaps other individuals. So Satan isn't shy about shooting his various arrows his way. He longs to see that man fall. I mean, isn't that Satan's desire? Ephesians chapter 6, when we're told to put on the armor of God, 
Paul constantly reminds us that he wants to see us fall. And Paul's constantly saying, stand, stand therefore, brethren. And it's true with, with any man of God who serves as an elder. It doesn't mean he won't fall. It doesn't mean that, that he won't be tempted. All those, everything you experience, he experienced. There's no magical, I wish there was, there's no magical shield around him. And he must engage in putting on the whole armor of God just like everyone else. It doesn't mean he's not in need to grow. He needs to grow. He needs to grow. He needs to learn. He needs, he needs his fellowship and intimacy with God just like everyone else. But he is a man who manifests a consistent piety. A consistent piety. So there's no honest ground to call him to account or accuse him of inconsistencies of character or conduct. He's to be blameless. Does such a man exist? Well, we have examples in the Word of God. You have Job. Remember Job? Job was a man who was characterized as being a blameless man. Job chapter 1 and verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him in all the earth. A blameless and upright man. You think Job ever sinned? Yeah, he did. In fact, as you read through the book of Job, you'll find out that, that he, he falls into somewhat of a complaining mode about what was going on. But if you watch Job's life, you saw a man who, who consistently walked with God in his conduct and in his behavior. Simeon, Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. We have the same idea. And then the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul says, On account of my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that which is with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. There's a blameless man. I don't want to do anything that bears reproach upon my God. And I want my life, and even if I die, I want Christ to be exalted and glorified. And so what does that blameless life look like? Well, again, go back to 1 Timothy 3. And he begins to open it up in detail as to what that looks like in a positive way and in a negative way. He's to do this, he's to do this, he's not to do this, and he's not to do that. But here is what a blameless man's life looks like. And I would, I would just mention this, that here in this list, the elder must have the special gift of teaching and ruling. He must be apt to teach. He must be able to lead. And the thing I would point out is that, that that's not the first category of things that Paul sets before us. 
the first thing he mentions is he must be blameless. At the top of the list is this unquestionable piety that is listed first. So what does it look like? Well, number one, we read here he's to be the husband of one wife. Or literally, it could be translated this way. A one-woman man. He's to be a one-woman man. Now, now, Paul here is not addressing the marital status of the man. Is this saying he has to be married? I don't think that's what Paul's addressing here. That in order to serve as an elder, you must be married. If if we say that, then if you read on down, we've got to say he's got to have children. And I don't believe that's what Paul's addressing here. What Paul is addressing is the issue of moral behavior. Moral behavior. I think it was John MacArthur that says, Many men only marry once, but are not one-woman men. Many men may have only married once, but they're not one-woman men. Now you, you got to realize, even when Paul's writing this, that polygamy was rampant, both with the Jews and the Gentiles. And there is no man who carries on that practice that was to assume the role of spiritual leader or pastor. But here it has more to do with who carries on that practice. Not being a polygamist. So long as I only have one marriage license with one person's name on it, then I meet the qualification. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that he needs to be a one-woman man, not only on paper, but in his heart. Not only on paper, but in his heart and in his behavior. As you watch that man and how he lives and how he behaves, you know, if he's a married man, that there's only one woman that he cherishes, that he treasures. That's not to say that he doesn't love other women as far as brothers or sisters, not brothers, as sisters. But you know he has eyes for only one. She has his heart. She is as, where was it, Deuteronomy 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there where, where Moses talks about the man who, who, whose wife he cherishes. He cherishes. He cherishes his wife. Remember when I read that, I, are, are there some wives you don't cherish? But this, this is a man who, who cherishes cherishes his wife. His interaction with other women. There's never any ground to question his purity or his uprightness. You know he treasures her and, and her alone in that 
way of intimacy. Mr. Bentley, in his commentary, has a word to say with regard to this. He says here, What Paul is teaching is that an overseer should live morally upright lives. They should be faithful in their marriage bond with their one wife. They must not adopt a pagan fashion of immoral relationships with other women. And they certainly must not have more than one wife at a time. That is, they must not be polygamous. There is one thing which is beyond dispute. This passage clearly, he goes on to another topic, clearly teaches that an elder must be a man. And then he opens that up a little bit. A woman can't be a one-woman man. And an elder must be that, is his argument. So it's obvious that this requirement must be met in an elder. Otherwise, how would you have any confidence in him? How, how would you allow him, if, if he's got a wandering eye, and he has this flirtation about him, wouldn't you be suspicious if your wife needed counsel and she wanted to go talk to him? I would be. And in order to have that type of confidence and to have a man that you're not suspicious of, he must be a one-woman man. And someone may say, I'm glad I'm not an elder. I'm glad that's not me. But I want to say this, that every one of these requirements, except perhaps the idea of apt to teach or leading, is required of every Christian man. Now the elder must be. Every Christian should be. Every Christian man who, who is married should be a one-woman man. Look over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul here writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's not writing to elders in particular. He's writing to the brethren. And he says, finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God just as actually you do walk and that you excel still more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And not in lustful passions like Gentiles who do not 
know God. This is written to the brethren. See that you live a moral life. Be careful that you don't walk in immorality. Be careful that you don't allow lustful passions to rule your heart and your mind. It's true with pastors. It ought to be true with every believer, every Christian man. That you guard your heart above everything else. And seek to so live that you have eyes for only one in that intimate relationship. Guard yourself. Because, you see, in our day and age, we can... We cannot be guilty of perhaps flirting with other women that we rub shoulders with. But too many men can get on the computer and give way to their lustful passions towards a woman that's not even real and break this commandment and instruction given to us by God. And so the first requirement of living a blameless life is that this man walks with moral integrity before God and how he treats other women and how he behaves around those other women that he guards himself and makes sure he cherishes his his wife like no other woman and so I think, I think I want to stop there. We could go on, but I think I want to stop with that and just encourage each one of us that as we consider these things, I think it was Pastor, again, Pastor Martin, Pastoral Theology, that reminded us that when it comes to the selection of elders, the appointment of elders, and as we think of these requirements, we need to look upward, we need to look inward, and we need to look outward. We need to look upward for light and for instruction. This is what God says we must obey. We need to look inward self-examination. Am I living as I ought to live? And then thirdly, we need to look outward and evaluate those men in the congregation and which one God might be raising up to serve as an elder. Dear people, more and more I look at these things and consider these things. I, I truly am convinced that for the good of this church, we need a plurality of elders, biblically qualified men to serve in that office for your safety, for my safety, and for the good of the church. And so I pray that you'll pray that God would be pleased to bring that to pass in the future for His glory and, and for His honor. Well, next week we'll have the Lord's table, so we'll be taking that. So in two weeks, I'll have you take out another half a sheet of paper, and at least you'll know two of the qualifications that you need to have if you're going to serve in the office of elder. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have not left us alone, but that you have given us your word to instruct us even on how your church 
should be cared for. And Father, we pray that You would give us other overseers and shepherds for the good of our souls. Raise up or bring in men who would meet these qualifications, who would be able to serve Your people even as a father does his family or a shepherd does his flock or a ruler does his kingdom. Father, we pray that as we seek to honestly assess and as You are pleased to give us such wonderful gifts that we might know Your blessing in days to come. That, that we might, as we gather together every Lord's Day, know of Your presence among us and Your smile upon all that we do. So help us as we consider these things together. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, in closing, take your hymns of grace. Hymns of grace, and it's a hymn in which we are reminded, hymn number 353, that every believer needs to continually be putting that armor on that we might stand against the evil of the enemy, Satan, in the day in which we live. 353, hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on.